What up, what up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the magic! (laughs) (laughs) My name is Jared. I'm joined here by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Austin. Yo, what up? And Ryan. What up, film fans? Let's do it. And today... Yeah, let's do it. Today we're talking about The Prestige, the 2006 film directed by Christopher Nolan, starring Christian Bale, Hugh Jackman, Scarlett Johansson, and Rebecca Hall. As always, we're going to go around and get first impressions. What was it like the first time you saw this movie, and what was it like revisiting it for this podcast? Let's start with Austin. Yeah, it's interesting, because this remember this film came out around the same time as the Ed Norton, what was it, The Illusionist? The Illusionist. Yeah. Right? And you know how Hollywood loves to double up, right? It's like Dante's Peak and Volcano and Illusionist and Prestige. It's weird Hollywood. when that happens. Bugs yeah. Life and Ants, of course, yeah. Yeah. Do they like that, or does that just happen incidentally? I think it's a coincidence. Yeah, I imagine that there's... Because there's like there's Frankenstein like, and I Frankenstein. It happens Mowgli all the time. and Jungle Book. Yeah, oh, yeah, and I bet I bet it's the sort of thing where there's like a race, right? Where you get studios and yeah. production companies that are like, these motherfuckers are going to get it out. Well, we got to capitalize on it because we can't come out a year later. We have to come out in the same time and then we'll try and like snag from them. Or maybe like we can mutually enforce each other. So... I was just going to say my least favorite one of those is the Steve Jobs marathon of movies where all three of them sucked. Every one of them sucked more than the other one. Uh, Wait, what's the third one? There's the one with Ashton Kutcher. There's the one with Michael Fassbender. And then what's the other one? There's I, Steve from Funny or Die, the first one. Are you kidding me? Oh, excuse me. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, I think I went in with this kind of thinking about it in in that framework and so i remember the first time i saw it i was actually pretty underwhelmed and i don't know why um i didn't love it and it's been one of those films that i've actually started to love in subsequent viewings more and more and more and more and i actually had a thought enjoy our producer gave me some shit about this in uh our telegram message earlier because I was talking about like a potential title for uh, this episode and I was like low-key Nolan's best film because I kind of no. had this thought after watching it last night. I was like this <laughs> might this might be one of my favorite Nolan films. It's To me, this is like in the top tier. This might be better than like some of the Batman films. Oh. Well, well yeah. I would, I would say some of the Batman films. Yeah. <laughs> for sure rises. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but maybe even Begins – Maybe Dark Knight, no. but I'm, yeah. I'm starting to become less and less enamored by The Dark Knight as time goes on. And I think that it's it's good, and it was great for what it did, but I'm thinking, like, in terms of a movie being pulled together, some of the drama, some of the twists, some of the fun, I fucking love this movie so much, man. I think you just need to, like, not think about The Dark Knight for a decade and then watch it, and then I think it'll come back to you why how awesome it is. It holds That's up. probably the problem. Yeah, I'm just so burned awesome. out, like, analyzing it and thinking about it. Obviously, we did the video. You just get saturated. In yeah. It. yeah, yeah. That might be it. Yeah. Uh, all right, Ryan, what about you? I don't love this movie. Why? Wow. Okay. Uh, I appreciate it for what it is. It's a masterfully put together movie, like all of Chris Nolan's movies. His screenplays just, he really, everyone goes to the movies to see his movies because of the spectacle, but really, you got to give him credit for his screenplay writing. They're just so tight. Is it Jonathan's screenplay? This one is. Not all of them are. But the good oh, yeah. ones are. They're both great. They're both, <laughs> awe. They're both amazing filmmakers. I mean, and they're both amazing writers. And so that's what I definitely am in awe of in this movie. And then, yeah, when it gets to the end, big spoiler alert, when it gets to the big twist, I do love that twist. And I find myself thinking about that twist a lot. And it's cinematically, the, the, the way that he... I don't love his his kind of flashbacky style that he has, his cinematic style, but he and he does it but he does it pretty well. Like he's very good at it. But I still it yeah. just doesn't move me emotionally like you know, it should. <laughs> or like a movie should, just in general. Which maybe I don't know, there's something to be said, his movies aren't all emotional. But I think he's tried to fix that lately by getting like McConaughey and Leonardo DiCaprio and people that can really pull off the emotions, uh, which is what he says in interviews. But yeah, this movie, I, I, it leaves me feeling kind of cold. And I love magic, man. This is probably the best magic movie, but that's not saying much when your fucking competition is the illusionist and the now you see me, now you don't 
uh, oh, do fuck all those movies. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I just don't really love this movie's okay. It has cool shit in it that is remark that, that that's really cool, but I don't know. See, speaking of the illusionist, though, the French animated one is. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Okay. Is it the same story? No. No, no. no. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, different different film name. entirely. Yeah. Okay. Um, Ryan, it's interesting you say that about the reveal that you think about a lot. Which reveal? It's obviously, spoiler territory. The the, the, the reveal of, of, his, of, of the final shot where it's revealed that he has been killing himself every night, a clone of himself. Okay. The, the, See, I, that's... That's why I have struggled with this movie before. Because the first time I saw this movie, I thought that it worked really well as a movie, but didn't work very well as a magic trick. Because as soon as I understood what the machine was, and as soon as I saw Hugh Jackman place a gun right next to the machine before he turns it on, I immediately knew what was going on every time really? he did the trick. You didn't yeah, think that maybe did. he put the you gun there was... to like kill himself, like in case he distorted himself and he was all fucked up, and so that's why he put the gun there so that he could kill himself afterwards? Well, no, I just assumed that he didn't want two of himself and huh. that, you know, because he knows that he's quite a narcissist and subject to a lot of very manic behavior, so he'd probably kill himself. And then as soon as I saw uh, Borden get accused for his murder when he sees Angier drown in the tub. I Look, I'm not exactly the most perceptive first-time movie viewer. There are plenty of movies that have flown right over my head upon first <laughs> viewing. But for some reason, for this movie, I got it early on, and that's why the movie failed for me as a magic trick. However, the reveal that did always get me was the one about the twins. That I did not get. The, the, that's a cool twist, too. You're right. Yeah. Uh, you know what I think, yeah. though? I think what this film is so interesting about is... Because obviously now I've seen it multiple times, and so the twist isn't as impactful. But that's not what is so interesting to me about the film. What's interesting about the film is, like, the philosophy behind it, right? And mm-hmm. I think I don't think that gets lost, which I'm sure we'll get into after we do the breakdown, but I don't think that gets lost. As a matter of fact, I almost think it makes it better because the whole idea is is that the philosophy of that be... you must kill for entertainment right? <laughs> that's right. that it takes sacrifice yes that's right exactly i agree with you 100 percent. continue that bird I, i'm sorry I, that I bird that little bird has to die uh okay yeah well i can't wait to talk about that so let's get through this recap well, wait, well, uh, well awesome did you finish your point all oh, right because I'm, I'm leaving i'm leaving it on the cliff so that we can talk about it on the other side of the yeah. breakdown okay. yeah okay as, as soon as we get the as soon as we get this recap, we'll talk about it. Uh, all right, so a bitter rivalry starts between magicians Robert Angier and Alfred Borden when Borden ties the wrong knot during a magic stunt that kills Angier's wife. Borden then meets a woman named Sarah and falls in love, but only seems to connect with her half the time. When they each start their own magic career, Borden reveals his greatest trick, the transported man, in which he seems to teleport between two wardrobes. Consumed with envy and ever the showman, Angier hires a double and tells his assistant Olivia to spy on Borden to learn his tricks, but she ends up falling in love with Borden. Angier's act attracts more attention than Borden's, but Borden gets the best of Angier and humiliates him during his act, driving Angier further into madness and desperation. Through Olivia, Angier gets a copy of Borden's diary and the keyword to decode it, Tesla. This drives Angier to seek out Nikolai Tesla in Colorado Springs, where he demands Tesla make him a transporting man machine that he also made Borden. But turns out, the diary is just a distraction and no machine was ever made. But Tesla makes the machine anyway, except instead of a machine that transports things, it replicates them. Angier brings the machine back to London and brings the house down with his new transported man trick. But one night, Borden sneaks backstage, sees Angier drown in a tank, and is put on death row for his murder. In prison, Borden is visited by one Lord Cadlow, who is actually Angier seemingly taunting him from beyond the grave. Borden is hung, and Angier returns to the theater where he is shot by Borden. 
turns out Borden has a twin brother and they've been switching off playing the role of Borden. The film ends with Angier dying while he's surrounded by the tanks containing the previous versions of himself he had to drown over and over and over again to achieve his trick. End of movie. All right, before we get into Austin's philosophizing, I got to give a shout out to our sponsors over at Skillshare. Most of us are stuck inside right now. Some of us with not much to do except wait for things to get back to normal whenever that may be. Actually, it seems like it's kind of coming for better or worse. Anyway, one thing you can do to keep your mind limber and keep yourself from going insane is to learn some new skills, and that's where Skillshare comes in. If you're looking to explore new skills or get inspired or deepen your existing passions, Skillshare is an online learning community where you can explore and discover thousands of classes on a wide variety of topics like graphic design, productivity, creative writing, film and video, freelancing, and more. And I want to emphasize the community aspect because during quarantine, finding a group of people online who share the same interests as you can be really rewarding because meeting people in real life is really hard right now. Uh, if you're looking for a class to take, in the past I've recommended iPhone filmmaking, creating cinematic video on your phone, also creative nonfiction, write truth with style with Susan Orlean, both great classes I recommend. But lately I've been focusing on more lifestyle-oriented stuff, so lately I've been plugging the class Everyday Minimalism, Find Common Creativity and Simple Living by Aaron Boyle. It's the perfect class to take in these times when everyone is trying to live simply, cheaply, and find a sense of calm while being productive. Aaron will teach you how to navigate stressful situations and how to make the best with less, not more, which is something that's quite important in my life. So I definitely recommend Aaron's class. When you compare Skillshare to expensive in-person workshops or night classes, it's quite affordable. An annual subscription is less than $10 a month. And right now they're offering Show Me the Meaning listeners two free months. All you got to do is go to Skillshare.com Wisecrack. Again, that's Skillshare.com Wisecrack for two free months of unlimited access to awesome classes. And now back to the show. All right. So, Austin, you say the thing that really inspires you the most about this movie is its philosophy. I can't wait to hear what you're saying, what you're going to say, not being facetious. No, I think that this is actually Nolan's most personal film because I think he hmm. sees himself as a magician. And I think he sees the role of the filmmaker as being identical to the role of the magician. You've got the three acts, which I think replicate mm -hmm. the three-act structure. Um, so you can't just take something away. You've got to bring it back, which is why he always has these twists or he always has this kind of like grand conclusion at the end, right, that he gives you. I think that, that he literally views himself uh, and, and views the magician as kind of doing the exact same thing. And really, what is that? It's ultimately playing with the audience's um, emotions and with their imaginations. And that final speech at the end where Angier says that Borden never got it. You never understood what it was. It wasn't about being the technician, right? And people always think about Nolan, too, as being a technician. But it's like, no, 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 no. It's not about being a technician. It's about the look on their faces. And that's it, right? It's about the joy. It's about being a performer. And the problem is, is when a filmmaker is behind the camera, the filmmaker is the one who is stuck below the stage, like Angier is, like the great Danton is when he has the body double. And that's got to be torturous, right? But what does he crave more than anything? He wants to see the look on their faces. And that's what I think this film is really all about. See, I love in this in this movie, there's like a kind of dichotomy between above stage and below stage. I mean, in a literal sense, Algier wants to be above stage to get the applause. So he ends up having to kill himself every night to achieve it. And his previous self dies in the tank below stage. Obviously, there's a scene that you were alluding to where he's below stage basking in the applause, even though that's not what he wants. But similarly, uh, well, I love this, is that Borden also dies quote-unquote below stage because his hanging is with a um, a, tra a trap door, basically. But both Angier and Borden are underground, per se, because Angier is stuck under the stage and able to bask in his applause, whereas Borden is underground in the sense that he can't live a normal life with his respective lover or their respective lovers. Mm. Isn't it great, too, that the only 
that the role of the actor in this film, the guy who actually is an actor, is like a slob, a drunk. He's the one who gets the praise. Is that Nolan saying like the actors get all this praise, but look at them, all Ooh. they do? Is that him? They're just my puppets. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but he's really the magician behind it all, right? Yeah, I think yeah. Um, I yeah. I mean, there's a a lot to that. Yeah, well, and then the whole idea of, like, you know, that man's reach exceeds his imagination. There's that great conversation that he has with Tesla where it's like, oh, you know, man's reach exceeds his grasp. But then um, the great Danton says man's reach exceeds his imagination, which means that even what we can conceive, we can actually extend beyond where and how through magic or through film. And I think that, again, is something else, right? It's about how you can exceed even beyond what you can conceive of through magic and through the power of illusion, which I think Nolan sees as being done through the medium of film. Well, what do you think that that line means just within the context of the film? Not necessarily the meta reading, but man's reach exceeds his imagination. To me, I always read this as man is almost because there's a dark side to this it's that man is able to do things that are so horrific that one could not imagine them which i think is what nolan was trying to achieve by the end of the movie in that a man is able to do such horrible things such as kill himself over and over and over again which is so perverted it's beyond your imagination except for me i guess because i'm a sick fuck and i saw it coming (laughs) But that, that's what I initially meant. thought it meant. This is the last thing I'll say, and then I'll let Ryan jump in because I've, I've been dominating it. But um, I think that this is really the triumph of science, right? Because this is one of the things that he says. Is he, What is the ultimate trick? The ultimate trick actually isn't illusion. It's actually science, right? So, And this goes to, mm-hmm. I think, Nolan's later work in Interstellar where he really does seem to have a love affair with man's capacity to transcend his or her limits, right? And uh, and I think it's science and technology and innovation that kind of becomes the thing that he thinks can ultimately get us beyond. And what is film? Film is a type of scientific technological play that's, that kind of layers on top of the imagination. So it's not just illusion and fancy storytelling, but it's actually using the tools of uh, of, of humanity's ingenuity via technology and science that can allow us to exceed the conceptions that we kind of just make up uh, in our minds. Something along those lines. Yeah. To, and yeah, and to piggyback on just how he's talking about magic in the script and in the, in the film, he uses the, the editing and all the film tools he has uh, to trick to trick the audience the entire movie, right? You know, he does the whole kind of Rashomon film style where he's showing you the same scenes over and over, but then you're getting more information every once in a while as he's as he's wanting to give it to you. And so, and I think I read before that there was like 146 jump cuts in this film, which are which is you know that's a lot of jump cuts. And so so he's constantly fucking with the audience just in the form of this movie about fucking with the audience in a magician <laughs> theater, you know? So the movie, it's cool. This is a pretty meta movie that we, uh, we, we could break down, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a film that he's using magic to, to talk about filmmaking, but then using filmmaking to really make magic awesome. Um, mm. and f- fool you with, uh, with film, which is what every movie tries to do slyly and subtly, but this movie does it great. And that's what he said, right? You're exactly right. Every film tries to do that. But he kind of, he almost breaks the magician's code, so to speak, right? Because he tells you that that's what he's doing in this film. But then he does it because then what does he say? But the audience doesn't care because the audience doesn't want to look at it. The audience wants to be fooled. So we go into the magic show. We go into the theater or now in isolation. We go into the Netflix account (laughs) and, and we lie to ourselves and we say, fool me. And that's the whole suspension of disbelief. And it's at that point we've like entrusted ourselves. We've like laid ourselves into the hands of the magician, the, to the filmmaker. And then it's what they do with those expectations and with that desire to be fooled that either makes the film amazing or makes it fall short. Because, you know, you're watching a film sometimes and then you become really aware like, oh, my God, I'm watching a stupid movie right now. That's because the director didn't do a good job of holding our disbelief. But Nolan is kind yeah. of like he's – He's telling us that's exactly what our responsibility is. And ultimately, what's the point? It's the look on their faces. It's entertainment. It's to make us happy. 
You know, and you can connect this to a lot of Christopher Nolan's work, and I'd never really thought about it in this context, but Austin knows how I'm always going on about noble lies and stuff like that. But he, but in the end, so, you know, at the end of uh, Insomnia, it ends with a noble lie, where, or at least there's the offer of a noble lie where Hilary Swank's character offers to hide the truth that Al Pacino's character was the murderer. Of course, the Memento ends with a noble lie because he lies to himself in order to give himself purpose and to the... And, deny the knowledge that he had already killed John G. Of course, The Dark Knight famously ends with a noble lie. You could argue The Dark Knight Rises ends with one, too, but I'm not going to go down the ra that rabbit hole. But anyway, at the end of this movie, he says, the uh, Angier says, the audience knows the truth. The world is simple, miserable, solid all the way through. But if you can fool them even for a second, then you can make them wonder. And then you see you've got something very special, the look on their faces. And I never really thought about it in context of this theme that Nolan keeps coming back to, that people need deception. They need some sort of lie in order to... Uh, just maintain a standard of living that is bearable. Yeah, to cover the cracks, right? I mean, yeah, if, if yeah. life is filled with anxiety and fear and what do we need? We need that retreat into something that, that, that creates a cohesion, that covers it over, you know? We talked about this. If people are interested, I don't know if, you, if they've seen it, um, the Nolan video part one that we did, and yeah. uh, which is just one angle. I think we did this three-part series. It talks about how some of his films deal with the self, some deal with society, and some deal with the universe. And this is definitely one of those films that deals with like human subjectivity. Like, what does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be a self? And I think you're exactly right that Nolan at least seems to believe that lies or that the imagination or that the noble lie, that, that there needs to be some way um, that we perform that type of uh, that type of dishonesty to ourselves that allows us to actually be human, right? That allows us to yeah. function in a world. Yeah. One more note on the bad guy. What's Hugh Jackman's character's name again? Angier. It's interesting you call him the bad guy. Yeah, I was going to say that too. He's I was, the bad guy. Well, you know, well, I, we could talk about that. I was going to... Yeah, I was also at some point going to ask, does this movie have a protagonist? But go on. I, I was just going to say, uh, it has some similarities to the last movie we talked about, I feel like, There Will Be Blood, where it's kind of in uh, uh, an aspire for greatness at all costs movie. Like, like this guy's going to, you know, he's trying to be the best ma magician, you know, uh, Plainview's trying to be the best oil man and get all the power. Or like you're going to do like a Citizen Kane kind of similarity where it's just a guy who is just a, a megalomaniac who is consumed with his own ego. But in this context, though, I think it's cool because it is about entertainment. He's obsessed with attention from other people, whereas uh, as opposed to money or, or whatever, uh, uh, which is different. And, and I, you know, it's almost like uh, you could put, put it into our own modern reality landscape of, of people just wanting to, to get that attention, whatever they can. It's a drug. You know, and he gets it every night and he'll kill for it, which is a fucked up thing to think about, which is what I like about the movie. Yeah, it's interesting because you got Borden, who his obsession is just to be the greatest magician possible. Whereas Danton, it almost seems that he does have like a superficiality. For him, it's never been about the magic. For him, it is about the like adulation and the praise that he can get, right? And mm. he's the much flashier showman. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there is something interesting so, in that. So wait, where? what do you think? Is this a movie with two anti-heroes? Because I think it's almost impossible to call Borden a hero be simply because too much information is withheld from the audience to identify with his struggles throughout the entirety of the movie. So he, he seems like the villain for most of the movie, and I guess Angier is our anti-hero. I don't really know how to formulate this. I think Angier is the protagonist, at least. I agree. I, I agree. And Jerry, yeah. like the film is mostly told from his journey with, mm -hmm. uh, with, with Borden being the, the foil to that. But the funny thing is, is who wins in the end is like Borden's duality wins in the end. Right. Or does he, or does, are we, well, it's really only, it's only because Michael Caine, who is the moral backbone of the movie, he tips off to Borden yeah. where Angier is going to be or something like that. Yeah, because somehow the the drive for just pure self-satisfaction and adulation, it's immoral because it 
it ultimately uh, it leads him to like kill Borden, which was like the ultimate obsession, right? Like I think we need to think that that the real transporting man was designed ultimately with that limited engagement. One because he's cloning himself, but two also to get Borden downstairs to be framed for his murder, which I think is intentionally planned. That's part of the that's part of the plan of doing that limited engagement show the way that it is, right? Because he knows that Borden's curiosity, he's going to have to like investigate and go backstage. So. I think that's oh, intentional. That's yeah, so I thought that was intentional, but then the idea is then he does that, so his whole life is about this vengeance and this revenge because Borden kills his wife early on, right? But then when the daughter gets involved, that's when Michael Caine is like, uh-uh, your obsession and your drive for success went too far. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you guys think that there's any... So we're, we've been talking about the meta reading of this movie quite a bit, and Michael Caine's character's name is Cutter. Do you think that hmm. this is like he's an the editor, overt... Man. Not, is the, yeah, is it an overt nod to oh. editing and how editing will, you know, maintain the illusion until the ending for the audience? Yes. That's, that's really fucking interesting. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say yes. Yeah, yeah, totally, right? Yeah. Could be. Yeah, yeah, it really could be. You know, Michael Caine does that, though, in all of Nolan's films, though, right? Well, that Michael Caine is in. He's always, like, the moral guy. Right? Even except his Alfred. Except in Interstellar, he's the guy who who lies. Another, in his mind, noble lie. But he lies about the fact that there's a plan. Oh, that's right. Plan A or B in Interstellar. And, and uh, he sends them on, like, a suicide mission. Mm. That's so awesome. Michael Caine's been in every Nolan movie. (laughs) (laughs) I know, man. I always, that's what I needed as an actor. I just needed to befriend like a badass director who was just going to cast me in everything, no matter what, just force me down people's throats. (laughs) Yeah. You need to be the, the, like the pig in Toy Story who's in every Pixar movie. Think about that paycheck you get every year. You're like, all right, sure. That's what I need. I'll be in the next Pixar movie. (laughs) You didn't have to ask me. me twice. (laughs) <laughs> yeah real quick what do you guys think about tenant in being in theaters because you see the commercials on there and it says coming to theaters coming to theaters coming to theaters july right are they still sticking with that they're sticking with it they're sticking with it what do you think do you think uh people are gonna go <sighs> risky move baby yeah i mean they're gonna go in parts of the country uh, i mean th- th- yes i think they're gonna go for one the th- if you think about it not they're gonna have like all of the real estate in the movie theaters because not not many movies are getting released now so maybe that'll be to their advantage but i do think that in certain parts of the regions that they're not going to get as much box office as they would but who knows man are they going to impose cinema, social distancing so. rules in the cinemas? Like only oh, yeah. an occupancy of 50, so like a person for every three seats or something like that? Dude, or? honestly, I could see that being how it is forever. <laughs> like, uh, uh, yeah, you go to the movie and you're going to have like a seat or two in between people, I'm pretty sure. Hopefully they put dummies yeah. up there. Sex dolls. Or this is when <laughs> this is when the prestige comes. This is all part of Nolan's magic trick, and he's gonna come out, and he's somehow gonna be like man's imagination exceeds his grasp, and he's gonna be involved with. I I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> all right, I know we're talking about the prestige, but we we have to at some point in this uh, podcast all give our predictions about what the fuck Tenet is about. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, see, I haven't put that much thought into it. Have you seen um, the last trailer? Have you seen the last? Have you seen? Anything? No, I'm I'm a big fan of going into movies blind. Yeah, I haven't been I paying attention are, either. Dude. What do you think All it's right. going to be about? Because because I know it's going to see. I know I'm going to see. Well, of it, course so. I'm going to see it, but I can't help myself, and I'm trying to put the puzzle together in my head. Um, but why well, don't do we not want to talk about it? Fuck. No, you could talk about it. Well, I have. I mean, I, I was hoping. I mean, it's not. Me. It's not spoilers. <laughs> it, I don't know. I, I I saw I saw something on TV, and it looked like there's some sort of. I mean, the movie's called Tenet. That's a palindrome. It looks like there's some kind of like, I don't know. Things are being reversed gravitationally and chronically, or something like that. Well, in in the 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 part of the tagline that that stuck out to me was that it's a movie. Um, not told in complete real time or something like that. So I feel like there's totally kind of a inception time stretching element. Dunkirk even, Dunkirk where he, too, yeah, w- yeah, where we're getting some 
the main characters are are experiencing time in a different level than the rest of the characters. I have no fucking clue. At well, first, I thought it was about the afterlife. Yeah. It's going to be so good. I'm I'm getting the coronavirus just to see that movie. I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> You're so brave, dude. Okay, well yeah. then, since we do this, why don't you do do your ranking of Nolan? I mean, there's like what twelve of them or something like that. So you don't have to go through all of them, but like, what is like the top tier sample of middle tier? And then are there films that you don't like of his? Oh, for sure. All right. So uh, 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 number one, Dark Knight. Number two, I'm gonna go Inception. Then three, Memento. Uh, four, we're gonna go uh, uh, Interstellar. Then dark, then Batman begins, then Dunkirk. The Dark Knight Rises at the very bottom. I hate that fucking movie. Wait, really? you didn't even, you didn't even, you didn't even mention the Prestige. Honestly, Prestige is one of the bottom ones, dude. I like it, but wow. I, it's it's uh-huh. it's probably right above Insomnia for me, and probably right above Following. Mm. So, um, yeah. anyway, that's my list. Sorry if I rambled. No, it's a pretty good list. Um, I would go. I mean, one, The Dark Knight, two, gosh, maybe, maybe Memento, three, uh, Inception, four. All right. Batman Begins. Um, yeah, five, Dunkirk. Six, yeah, I guess six, The Prestige. See? And then, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, hmm. but that's not to say that it's not good. It's great. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, the it's just hard. I like, when, like Batman rises. Yeah, he just doesn't have any misses, really. You know, like you can't really fault him for following in Insomnia. Insomnia wasn't his script, right? And that's not normal. Normally, he there's cool own, shit yeah. in it, but it's not yeah. the best. And then, like, following is his first film, so it's like there's cool shit in that. Yeah, I know it's best. cool. That's what I mean. It's yeah, like you can't movie. you can't really fault him. Um, I don't know. I think for me, my first tier of films, maybe I'm just having Batman fatigue, but like Memento has always been my favorite of his films. It's one of my favorite films of all time. So it's number one for me. And then I would have to say like Prestige and Dunkirk are up in there. And yeah, then we'll have The Dark Knight up in there as well in the top tier. And then like, I guess Batman Begins is in the top tier. And then middle tier is like Batman uh, or Dark Knight Rises and... um, like uh, if there is a bottom tier, but like we'll just combine the middle and the bottom tier, and like insomnia and following and um, and stuff like that. But I kind of think that Prestige for me is in that top tier. You know, like is it is it his best film? No, I think Memento is his his most intriguing, his most interesting. It's one of my favorite films, but I think it's in that top tier. Middle tier for, for me. me. For me, everything is top tier except for The Dark Knight Rises, which I put in a, a lower tier. Uh, <laughs> See, I dig it, though. Like, I don't hate that movie like everybody does. I still think there's a lot of cool shit in there. Like, why, why do you there hate it? I hate that movie it? like I'm everybody does. I'm, I'm, I'm spoiled. It's really not that bad. I, actually, every time I watch it, I like it a little bit more. Which is, But having said that, I did start at the very bottom. Every time but... I watch it, it pisses me off a little bit more. <laughs> like, I'm just like, wow. Uh, this could have been so awesome. The perfect end of the perfect trilogy. You fucked it up so bad. Why, Chris? Why? You're so brilliant the rest of the time. Why? Okay, I'll, I'll stop. Yeah. No one, no one bats a hundred in this industry. Yeah, but this uh, is true. That is true. All right, we've gone on a tangent. I think we're done talking about Prestige. All agree, it's a good movie. Got some cool shit. Well, well we got to talk about David Bowie. Oh yeah, I mean, well, as Tesla, I dug his, I dug his performance. I thought he was good. I got, I got a little emotional because this is the first time I had seen him on screen since, since like he passed away, I think, and. I didn't remember, and then all of a sudden when he starts talking about going to Tesla, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's David Bowie. I'm like, oh, cool, Hell, man. yeah, it is. Yeah. See, I had watched Twin Peaks Firewalk with me recently, so I had seen David Bowie since his passing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, I mean, I will say this. If there's any weak point in the film, I do think – I mean, one, I don't think that Scarlett Johansson's character is all that great. Um, yeah. I don't, yeah, I mean, she's gorgeous, but, like, I just... And she does her role as the supposed, like... She's supposed to be the gorgeous distraction, right? Which also is interesting, because the magician has to have the, the distraction, so then, of course, you have her in there. 
Um, I think there's something interesting about the wife. Is it Sarah? That like the way she hangs herself, she hangs herself like a bird. The birds that get sacrificed in the cages that get crushed for the purpose of the magic trick. So in Borden's oh, life, nice. right? She has to get sacrificed yeah. so that his magic trick can can flourish so that he can like do the big reveal. I think that's interesting. Um, but the biggest weak point I think is actually the fact that it went to science. I kind of would have just maybe enjoyed mm. if it stayed with illusion, but it was almost like he was trying to ground all of this illusory stuff, right? That that magicians, it's like, oh, it's not real. He had to ground it in something real and then still say that we can exceed or that we can still entertain through or that we can transcend. I don't know. To me, that's the only thing I kind of – I go back and forth on. Like part of me is like, oh, that's kind of cool. And part of me is kind of like, well, that's just kind of cheesy and easy, you know? Yeah. He didn't have that many hours. Here's a magic machine. (laughs) Yeah. I I didn't see it coming the first time it happened. Like, because the first time I saw it, I was like, that was actually a moment where I was like, all right, you know, this movie's kind of boring. And wait, there's a magic cloning machine in this movie? Like, I thought this was like a period piece. Yeah. Yeah. Right. they're, They're going there. All right. And then I got more into it. And that, that made it go from a D to a C, I think. Yeah. Well, it's kind of he's kind of doing the revisionist history thing that we like talk it. about whenever we're talking about Tarantino movies because I think that Tesla he really did go to Colorado Springs at one point. They have uh, references to his beef with uh, Edison, uh, Edison, yeah, and stuff like that. So, I I mean it's certainly a lot different than the way Tarantino does it, but uh, cool either way. Yeah, it would have been cool if fucking Tesla just started, like, murdering Edison and all of his people and got revenge and transformed the history of the world. And then the encore of the film is that the world has been lit up by Tesla's crazy, freaky technology and everyone clones themselves, right? And then he starts a, a, a electric car business named after himself. <laughs> oh! Oh, my God. And then he starts dating Grimes. Uh, awesome. Yes. David Bowie dating Grimes. Sweet. <laughs> all right guys uh we're gonna head into some voicemails you can hit us up at 213-534-8807 or 21 elf hut 07 it's where the elves party uh let's start off with uh we got some voicemails about there will be blood let's start off with one from jason hey wisecrack this is jason calling in about there will be blood uh i wanted to mention two things uh the first is about the title you guys are talking about what the blood is uh, symbolic of or where it officially, you know, uh, draw, draws inspiration from. And I thought it was worth mentioning that uh, there's a passage in the Bible from the book of the Exodus that specifically uses the phrase, there will be blood. And what's interesting is that for anyone who's seen Magnolia, uh, PTA makes another very overt reference to the book of Exodus in that movie. So I, I just think that it's fascinating that he clearly has some obsession or uh, relation to the story, and it's kind of woven its way through his filmography. The other thing I wanted to mention uh, just goes to what Austin was saying about the little details that are sprinkled in to show the degradation of Daniel's character. Um, and it's at the very end of the movie when Eli Sunday goes to Daniel's house, and he goes and wakes him up in the bowling alley. And where is Daniel sleeping? He's sleeping in the gutter of the alley which I just think is so brilliant because even though Daniel has kind of reached the highest peak in terms of affluence and success and career, he's just lost everything that makes him human along the way and has fallen to the lowest place still possible. And he's sleeping in the gutter. And I just think that that's so, so brilliant as is the whole movie. And I love your guys' discussion. Uh, thanks. And uh, yeah, keep doing you. Dude, you All showed right, me the thanks, meaning Susan. there. Yeah, dude. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, do you think do you think that all those details are attributable to to Anderson or do you think that some of them might be uh Daniel Day-Lewis too because you know how much of a a technician he is as well, right? So like maybe he's talking with PTA and is like, "Hey, what if what if like his handwriting gets kind of more scribbly or what if like I bet you 
I don't know if it's true or not, but like I would not be surprised if Daniel Day-Lewis spent six months like learning calligraphy and old-fashioned handwriting so that the original signature was actually his hand doing it, right? Like that's how devoted he is to his craft. So yeah. do you think that he's like, oh yeah, we could do that and that could be a nice little flourish? And then, oh, maybe when he's discovered at the end, he's sleeping in the gutter and then PTA is like, oh yeah, I like that. Like do you think that most of it is PTA or do you think that like he allows for that type of collaboration with someone like a Daniel Day-Lewis who is obviously so inventive in his own craft? It's hard to say, but I would probably lean towards him being collaborative. I remember a quote from him once where, and who knows if this is bullshit or not, but somebody asked him about his directing process, and I guess this is kind of dodging the question, but he said, basically, just hire the most talented actors you can and feed them lunch well. <laughs> you know, and, and he's like, that's the best thing I can do as a director. Uh, which I think there's a lot of truth to that. But yeah, sorry, go ahead, Ryan. Well, I mean, just in terms of cinematic things, though, he, he clearly makes very bold choices in his movies. And I don't think that he's necessarily just fly on, on the whim of the day uh, uh, doing. I think that a lot of it, um, he's, he's clearly a very good editor and shoots a lot of coverage, it seems like. I, feel, I get the impression that he does. And so I think that, that he can kind of come up with those kind of symbols in the editor room sometimes. I think that happens. But something like, hey, are you going to sleep in the gutter or where are you going to sleep? I think that that seems like a, probably a pretty big choice that he probably made in the script phase or on the day by himself. I'm, I'm guessing. See, yeah. actors always want to attribute all the inventive things to actors, and filmmakers always want to be like, nah, nah, I was storyboarded. If the movie's good, <laughs> yeah. the movie yeah, sucks, true. they're like, the fucking director fucked my edit up, man. <laughs> right. Or the editor. Uh, all right, let's get one from Jacob, our old boy Jacob. Streaming me, Wisecrack Crew, Jacob calling again in regards to you, there will be blood podcast. I enjoyed the movie very much. Uh, though I still think it is one of the greatest movies ever. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis gives a very excellent performance as Daniel Playview. Now, one of the things, rewatching it again, is honesty versus dishonesty came to my mind. So Daniel Plainview does not shy away from what he really is. He's a ruthless businessman who will do whatever it takes to make money. And I think it is in one of the speeches he says that uh, I have a competition inside me about who I am. <clears throat> and then you have Eli, who is the holy preacher, saint character, who really hides who he is behind uh, really narcissism. So I want to know what you guys thought, think about that, the honest man versus the dishonest man, and kind of what it has to relate to the American dream of the honest man always makes the money while the dishonest man doesn't make the money. So, uh, yeah, you guys have a nice day. Try to be safe in full thing. All right. Thanks, Jacob. I guess the thing about this voicemail is I think that Daniel is dishonest. And I think that's one of the most important things about his characters because he's a fake family man in the same way that Eli's a fake prophet. And so I think that they're both equally dishonest. And as far as the one who wins winning, well, I mean, oil was a good thing to dig for in the dirt rather than uh, faith followers. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder that. Does either do either of them win, right? Like, he gains a lot of monetary. Well, one of them. Well, I mean, one of them dies. So, <laughs> yeah, but maybe he's put out of his misery, or he's released to go to his god, or whatever. I don't Jesus. know. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. No, I think there's no winners in that movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so either. That's the thing is. I think it's a really it's a tragic tale. It's a tragic it's tale. Bleak. I think it's it's the more I've been thinking about it, I actually do think it's a kind of post western, right? Like it's a revisionist western. It's a revisionist myth of how the west was founded rather than looking at cowboys or something like that or it's a revisionist myth of how America was founded, right? On oil, with oil being at least the subject matter of this particular examination. But and, how's that revisionist uh, though? Well, I mean, if it's if it's a revisionist Western, right? Because normally, like, the classic Westerns have a particular tale, a particular narratival structure, and so this kind of would... I still think we could think of it as a Western, right? Like, the man of yeah. violence kind of thing, and he comes in, and you have, like, the common land, right? Like, that's the big thing in, um, in Searchers and even in uh, Shane, right? Where, like, the fences are getting put up. We talked about this in our Logan video, right? Which kind of, like, replicates uh, this active enclosure, right? You kind of get that here. You have this wide-open 
frontier and you have him that's like purchasing land and he goes to the real estate office and so there's kind of these like western motifs that are that are repeated but it's told from a different perspective rather than being like ranchers and cowboys saving the day and fighting against like violent I don't know Native Americans or whatever it is that they're doing, or or like the bad the bad rancher who's trying to steal the cattle or something like that. What you now have now is the story of oil, right? But it's kind of told in a in a similar Western style. But I think it's a tragic gotcha. tale of the American myth, you know? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, all right, we've got two great emails that I want to get to real quick before we wrap up. So this one is from, oh, by the way, you can hit us up at movies at wisecrack.co. That's .co, not .com. This first one is from Arsh. Arsh says, love the show, love the fact that you covered this film. I know towards the end you had spoken to the fact that the movie is largely bloodless until the end, where suddenly there's the blood. This was a bit of a running gag online when the film came out, and I also recall that this is one of the earliest, most memed films with a lot of people running with the milkshake scene and creating comedy from it. Any thoughts as to why you think this movie is so meme-friendly? Mm-hmm. My thinking is it's simply the fact that it has a lot of tense moments, which are some of its most quotable. Maybe I'm wrong, I don't know, but I certainly have vivid recollection of the memes. So that's from Arsh, and I agree. I wonder what makes this film so quotable. In the same reason, I would ask what makes The Big Lebowski so quotable. But at least that's funny. This movie's not funny. No, it is funny. I was just about to say that that I think that one of the reasons that this movie is memeable is that Paul Thomas Anderson has a awesome sense of humor and is a funny guy. And I remember when the, I mean, this was a really bizarre choice for a movie for him to make. Everyone. what he went from punch drunk love to this right because so if you took his filmography and you're kind of like where is he going he made all these classics that everyone loves and he's making this movie about you know about oil men but Mm. i think he's still the same guy that is making this movie about oil men and he cut it that uh he cut it with a slight sense of humor subtly and then just daniel day lewis is pretty over-the-top performance and Paul Dano's pretty over-the-top performances in a in a field of other non-actors who are not over-the-top performing makes it, I think, it gives it a memeable quality to it. Uh, and just his filmmaking style, too, uh, hmm. uh, is cool and different and modern for a, for, for a period piece-looking film. Is it, is it possible that it's just as simple as just it's so good and that makes it funny in a sense like when i think no. of daniel day lewis when i think of daniel day lewis saying i've abandoned my child i've abandoned my boy or saying you're just a bastard from a basket i don't think it's I, i've never i've seen the movie probably 15 times i've never laughed once during those uh, do you think, do you think it's have. discomfort intention though like the uh, i've abandoned my boy doesn't get me chuckling but the you're just a bastard it's how cruel he is it's so ridiculously cruel that it makes us uncomfortable and discomfort oftentimes is a source of laughter right so maybe that's part of it too you guys didn't laugh when he was rubbing eli's face in the mud like i repeatedly did. over and I, over, I over and over again like to a ridiculous degree oh no i think that's, it's funny but that's not, i agree that's with you ryan the memeable moments right but but th- i'm just saying that that's an attributable moment to pta kind of having a sense of humor he could he let that moment go on for a while where he could have cut uh, but I, I, I would honestly, the milkshake scene is the reason that it's memeable. It's that scene is and, so and that crazy. One's, and that one's funny. Right. That one's that. hilarious. And I think that that's the reason that it caught people's attention in the way it did. Yeah. All right. This last email is from Aton, and this one is uh, appropriate to some of the Nolan themes that we've been talking about. But it is an email about There Will Be Blood. He says, I think there's another interesting aspect of religion in There Will Be Blood. In the scene in the church when Eli throws the devil out, although, as you pointed out, it's obviously phony, the people in the church benefit from it. The woman with arthritis is relieved, and all the people in the church are enthralled by what is happening. Eli is clearly well-liked by his churchgoers, and his ideas give them comfort. Eli is a peddler of what Vonnegut calls FOMA, harmless untruths that help people live happier and more fulfilling lives. So even at the end of the movie where Eli yells, I'm a false prophet, God is a superstition, does this really affect the experiences Eli had in church? I would think not. He is providing a service to the people, whether it is real or not. The only problem comes when the untruths cross over from harmless to harmful, when religion becomes exploitative. Wondering what you guys think of this role of religion. From Aton. We've, I feel like we've we've talked about that in some regard before. Like like I'm willing to give religions more of a benefit of the doubt. Yeah, in terms of 
I don't think that if somebody believes a lot of bullshit that that's necessarily being exploitative. It's when money gets involved and stuff. And you're like, oh, you know, the tithing, the 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 prosperity gospel stuff. Like, oh, if you give me, you know, 50% of your shit, like, uh, uh, you'll be more saved or whatever. That shit obviously is more, ex- is actual exploitation in my head. But, to, you know, it really when you talk about, like, Scientology, I think, is the most extreme and relevant example to today. Just on, do you think that's exploitation? And, like I said, yeah, when money gets involved, which a lot of, there's a lot of money that gets thrown around in Scientology, yes. But but just reading L. Ron Hubbard's books and buying into his philosophies and living by them and then thinking that's awesome and it's helping your life, I don't find necessarily that much wrong with that or exploit or anything exploitative. Ryan's you know? an advocate of the noble lie, everybody. Right, exactly. <laughs> I 100% am. Ignorance is bliss, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen, Getting I'm not tattooed. lying. I'm actually going to do a video on my YouTube channel about like isolation and loneliness that comes from being involved in like academic and philosophical pursuits. If I didn't take the quote unquote red pill, if I didn't go down the rabbit hole, right? Like there's a sense in which life is really enjoyable when you're just like, I don't know, chasing chicks and trying to like travel. And like if you just have a real simple outlook on things, the more complex things get and the more difficult and critical and things like that uh, thing, the, the, the things can get, it can like add difficulties and make life a lot more, I don't know, a, a lot more pressing down upon you. Whereas like in my old even in my old evangelical days, man, all I wanted to do was like meet a cool chick and like surf and hang out with my friends and like try to worship God and help people. Life was pretty good, but I just kind of realized that I was maybe full of shit in some ways. And so it kind of opened things up, but what's better? I don't really ultimately know, you know? Hey man, you're still surfing. I am still surfing. Yeah, I am. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're going to go ahead and close it for today. We'll see you guys in two weeks. But before we go, where can we find you guys on the internet? Ryan. I am on at Ryan's Game Show on Twitter. I tweet sometimes now. And then I'm at Ryan's Game Show and at, at Ryan Shorts on YouTube. All the time, baby. Go check it out. All the time. Hit that baby. bell. Hit that bell. All right. And Austin. Yep. You can hit me up Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden um, on Insta, A-U-S underscore H-A-Y. I do have a YouTube channel. I was reading through the Bible. Um, and then it just got to be too much. I'm still going to finish my read through of the Bible. Uh, so check that out. I am still, I'm still doing it, but I'm not, I was doing it every day before and I was uploading videos every day and it just got to be too fucking crazy. I'm going to be doing those periodically, but I'm also doing other stuff where, you know, like I just talked about this issue about isolation and loneliness, but also on like Christianity and socialism. I'll talk about like love and all kinds of philosophy and theological and maybe film and cultural shit. So you can just search my name, Austin Hayden Smith on YouTube for that. All right, we'll see you guys in two weeks. Until next time, bring us out, Ryan. Goodbye from Hollywood, California!